Hi, everyone. Sort of fell off the podcast for a minute there. May was, um, I- I'm saying was as though it's in past tense, but it's actually May uh, 24th today. It's not even over yet. But honestly, it feels like it just went right past me. It started and now it's over almost. Um, my whole family went to go visit my sister. And between that and trying to educate myself about the situation with Israel and Palestine right now, and then trying to advocate for Palestinians, and then dealing with the emotionality of the pushback I've gotten from advocating for Palestinians, I've been kind of all over the place. Um, but I'm hoping to get back into gear here. Um, but I am just, I'm just one person doing this with the help of my older brother. He does all of the technical podcasting things. I just record and then edit and he does everything else. I would try to explain to you what that is, but I don't actually know because he just does it. I don't worry about it. Um, suffice it to say that I could not do this podcast without him. So thank you. And he's actually who we are talking to today. My oldest brother, Danny. I have three brothers, but Danny's the only one who's older than me. He's four years older than me. Um, I'm not sure what he would say about himself, but I'm going to try to give him a little introduction here because we didn't give him one in the convo and he's a busy dude and I'm trying to get this out by tomorrow. So hopefully whatever I say is okay. Um, he is 33 and he and his wife are expecting a baby this summer. He is a self-starter hundred percent. Every job he's ever had, he kind of teaches himself to do and has learned a lot along the way. And it's part of the reason why he knows how to do the podcasting thing. He's picked up all that stuff and all of the jobs that he's had. And not only is he more technologically knowledgeable than I am, but he's also much more of a people person than I am. Um, when I started going to singles ward a few years after I graduated high school, he'd already been in the singles ward for a hot minute. And when I met people in the singles ward, they'd be like, wait, you're Danny's sister? And they were incredulous because my brother is is a people person. He gets along with people really well. He's very outgoing. And I am what you would call the opposite. Um, I didn't talk to anybody ever about anything. <laughs> um but he's a good guy. I like him. And I think that what we talk about today is going to be hopefully the first in a series of conversations that I have with my immediate family members. Um, talking about all of these social and racial justice issues. And I hope that it's going to be an encouragement to those of you who are just kind of starting to put your feet into this, this realm of things. Um, and whether you've been doing it for a while or just getting started, I hope that there are things in here that you can take either to to help you have conversations with other people or to help you learn something for yourself. Um, without further ado, here's my conversation with Danny. Well, hey. <laughs> Ruth, thanks for talking to me a little bit about the stuff that you've been going through and I can appreciate that it's a difficult conversation, especially when your family or family members may not understand or agree with topics or the tactics or the approach. But I don't know. For me, I think very broadly, it's a difficult thing to address. 
because I don't know if I have an opinion or if I have an opinion that is functional enough to discuss, if that makes sense. Um, like you're not well informed on the topic or how do you mean functional? Yeah. So yeah, the, the, the opinion not being functional to me is one of, well, I only have the bits and pieces that I've heard. Some of the things that I've read, some of my own experiences, but in terms of the dialogue that you often want to have, I, I put my hands up in the air because it's, a little bit beyond me. I, I don't. I can see both sides. Mm-hmm. Sometimes too clearly. And at that same time, not clear enough. Hmm. It's very strange and sometimes convoluted because the feelings that I have on one side versus the feelings that I have on the other side don't quite mix. Right. It's your not being able to bring them together that um, keeps you from saying something or what? A little bit. So oftentimes I don't feel like I can say anything because on, on one side I feel like it's, well, this is kind of how life is. We can do the things that we feel are important or necessary to do in our own lives, but to expect that we can make some kind of large change and we're talking specifically with the church here i don't think it's i don't think it's a viable thought why because of the time that it takes and the influence necessary to make those kinds of changes i mean if we look at several different aspects of change that the church has had to go through. It's 200 years old. And there's still a lot that's not right. Right. But in, in 200 years, which for a religion is not actually that old. Right. And in that time, I feel like it's already changed a lot in a lot of the smaller ways. Um, But even from the beginning, like, I mentioned this in a conversation previous with somebody else that a lot of the um, like the church activities, like activities for like the youth and really society and primary and stuff like that were community, community led actions that then the church adopted. So in that sense, I'm kind of confused as to how like, how we wouldn't be able to enact more change just by doing our thing as a community, not necessarily within like the church. Cause I, I, I agree with you that it's not necessarily like, Oh, you know, us as a ward, we're just going to stop doing this or start doing that. And then the church is going to listen and whatever, but cause you know, you're going to run up against uh, a bunch of barriers saying, well, no, you can't do this. No, you can't do that. Blah, blah, blah. But if you just do it without, without, without the parameters of the church, and then at some point maybe the church is like, oh, hey, that seems like it's working or seems like something that more people within the church would appreciate. So let's try that. Like, for me, it's, it's not necessarily about being like, 
like storming the, <laughs> um, I can't even, I was going to say church capital, but that's not a thing. <laughs> the, the church offices. Yeah. It's not about like storming the church offices or like protesting outside and being like, Hey, like you're not listening to me. It's more about, um, the people within the church feeling more freedom to do things outside of church. And maybe that's just my personal perspective, but I know that it's uh, resonates with other people that I've spoken to that they feel like they're limited to what the church allows them to do or what the church says is okay to do within the church parameters. But Mm -hmm. that there's so many things beyond just church things that we can do in our own communities. And I feel like a lot of the time, because there is so much of like a service oriented aspect of the church that we tend to be like, well, I serve within the church and I'm not going to go further than that. Like I have too many other things to do in my life. But when we talk about like getting involved in local politics or even just in like local community stuff, like I don't see a lot of that around here because everyone kind of is like, well, I already kind of have my setup community system in my ward in my stake Mm -hmm. yada yada and people don't move beyond that when really we could and we should um so i don't know it's like talking to people that they're like oh yeah i know the people in my neighborhood who go to church if they don't go to church then i don't know who they are and i remember feeling that way growing up in the house where mom and dad live now like Oh, I know who lives here. I know who lives here. That person doesn't go to church, so I have no idea who even lives in that house. Like, but they're like our next door neighbors. <laughs> like, I don't know. I just think that there is something about the convenience of being able to serve within the church parameters that keeps people from thinking that they have the ability or the time or the capacity to, um, act or serve outside of it or beyond it. And I think that had the early church members thought that way, the Relief Society wouldn't exist. Primary wouldn't exist. Um, I think even a singles ward is how that started. It it wasn't like a church-wide thing. Um, But, you know, it's like without, without thinking outside of the church auxiliaries, there's a lot that probably wouldn't have come to fruition and is part of what we know of the church now. That makes sense. And see, for me, that's, that's a lot of what I just, I am not aware of um, those extra things. I didn't, I don't think I ever really realized that those came because members were like, Hey, we want to do something here. And now it becomes a church sanctioned thing. Um, I, I guess the question then I have is, what is the end result that is to be achieved here? Is it a more open discussion of, hey, yeah, the church did some really sketchy things in terms of race relations or or just ethnic situations, and in order to move forward, we have to address those. And then what does that mean, addressing those inequalities or situations or the culture? How do you change a culture in an international organization? I mean, that's a good question. I think that it has been said before that the church is different depending on where you're a member of the church. But I think in the United States and in Utah specifically, there is a very specific 
culture, something that doesn't necessarily extend to the church as a whole. But because, you know, the church is based in Utah, I would think that that's where we start is here with the leadership here in a general sense. And then whoever needs to redirect or come correct can look upon that example and go from there. I don't know. It's interesting to have spoken to people who have come to Utah having grown up and been in the church somewhere else in the United States that some people are like, oh yeah, like Utah's the place to be. Like Utah's where you're going to go and like find somebody to marry. And then there's some people who are like, oh, the Utah Mormons, they're like the worst Mormons of them all. So just depending on how you look at it. Yeah. And I think both can be true. Yeah. I don't know. I just think that we, especially here in Utah, there's a vast amount of room for improvement or I think it it just comes to seeing that example and I know this is like a a conversation that I've had with like dad and Sam a lot that they're like well it's not the church's responsibility to like tell people what to do it's the whole like teach them correct principles and let them govern themselves and I'm like yeah but also clearly the principles aren't coming across in the way that they need to because they're being skewed and that skewed principles and being perpetuated through an entire state and maybe the United States, like, mm. I don't know. It just. Uh, going back to that, the church's responsibility, it's, or, I mean, I think over time, the church has taken it upon themselves itself to make those decisions. I mean, if in the last few years, that's what, two, four years, maybe more, they've changed the time block from Mm -hmm. three hours to two hours Mm -hmm. with the intent that it's taking the the time necessary or giving it back to the families to have their own coming together, teaching, learning. And then they change the curriculum Mm -hmm. to make that more effective. Mm -hmm. Um, The only thing I could see is they're making it their responsibility to give families more responsibility. Mm -hmm. So with that comment, yeah, I, agree that maybe the church shouldn't take that responsibility but they are right and the church establishing certain programs or policies is then taking the responsibility to teach things that aren't being taught or to ensure that the right things are taught so yeah i agree with you though that if this is something that needs to change from this top down they can do it mm-hmm if it's up to them to establish policies and teachings. Right. Because the whole point of it's like... simple as changing the handbook. Yeah. The whole point of the, the Come Follow Me program and, and cutting down the, the, the three-hour block to two hours was to emphasize the family teaching at home and then to further emphasize that churches to just reinforce that home family teaching. Um, mm-hmm. and, and what you said kind of struck me as important that churches to make sure things are getting taught the cor- the cor- like the correct thing is being taught or it's coming across the correct way. And at this point, I have had the thought that like it's easier for me to think about keeping Ramona at home and teaching her the way I want to teach her because I have no idea what someone's going to be teaching her in church and I can't trust that it's going to be the correct thing or the right thing. 
Yeah, that makes sense. Because so much of the time, um, rather than, I don't know, and it's not about, rather than, because I was going to say, rather than teaching, I was going to say, rather than teaching what's exactly in the teaching manual, people will kind of insert their own opinions. But much of the time, even what has been in the manual is not 100% on the nose about like what we should be learning or teaching. And I think part of the point of church is for people to kind of give their interpretation, but within reason, you know, not necessarily like, I guess maybe not their interpretation exactly, but to put themselves in it. Like when you give talks in church or teachers, they're drawing upon their own life experience and how these principles have affected them or have had effect in their lives. And I think that that's important, but where it becomes tricky is that people already have sort of these seemingly cemented ideas about what is and what isn't. And that affects then what they pass on to whoever else. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like speaking specifically in like a, in, in the context of the young women's when teaching chastity lessons a lot of the time those same like harmful messages of like oh here's a brand new piece of gum who wants it i'm going to chew it now now who wants this piece of gum this is you after you have sex like nobody's going to want you right that's not uh-huh. okay but it's something that's been perpetuated for years in the church yeah or it's like the crushed flower once you crush it you can't make it look like it was again it's because the, the teaching in the church is analogous to a fault. Mm-hmm. Analogy is the way that we do things. Mm-hmm. And that's oftentimes detrimental when you don't have the right analogy. Right. It's funny you bring that up, though, because Marie, my wife, was saying that she saw this post um, on Instagram that was saying, hey, everyone remember that this is about the time of year that the law of chastity is being taught. Mm. Make sure that you know what's being taught to your children, mm-hmm. because it's a, it's essentially depending on who's teaching yeah. a sex ed talk. Mm-hmm. And if you want to be better involved with your children's upbringing and teaching, you need to know what's being taught. And I kind of wish, and like how. having been a young woman's teacher, I wish that there had been more interaction with the parents I tried to interact with them I would send emails I would call sometimes but you know I get that parents are busy and stuff but I would think that they would want to know what I'm teaching or what I plan to teach and because that was the hard thing is that with um even with the young women's lessons it was supposed to go along with whatever was being taught in come follow me to a certain extent and Mm -hmm. um just to prepare I would send a talk that was featured in the manual or a video or a bank of scriptures and be like, Hey, will you, I'd send it the Sunday before we were going to learn about it like the following week and just, you know, be like, Hey, this is what we just to let you know, like we're going to be talking about this in young women's next week. And I would really appreciate it if you could either watch this like two minute video with your daughter or read a couple paragraphs of this talk, or even just read these few scriptures and talk to your daughter about that. Have a conversation with them. You don't even necessarily need to 
end at a certain point. I'm not looking for a specific thing. I just want you guys to talk about that so that when they come to class, they come prepared, having had ideas and in the full week since then, maybe thinking about that, maybe not thinking about it, but then they don't come to Sunday. Cause that was the things like with the, under the come follow me, it's supposed to be like a class discussion and not a lecture. Mm. And I freaking hate being up in front of people. So teaching was like a nah for me, but I did it. And it was uncomfortable because as much as much as I tried and as hard as I tried to get them involved in the conversation, I like I, th- I thought back to when I was in Young Women's and, you know, I always felt bad, like if the teacher had clearly like taken time to prepare like what we're talking about and they're asking a question, that's a good question. But like off the top of my head, I can't think of anything. So everyone's just quiet and I just like feel bad because I'm like, I'm just like trying to think of something to say so she doesn't feel bad. But it was like, I was on the other side of it then. They're all just like sitting there like staring at me and I'm like, cool, 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 cool. I'm just going to sit here forever until someone says something. But I don't know. And it's like, even the other leaders wouldn't pipe in. They wouldn't participate. It was like, this is the girl's time to talk. And I'm like, you know what? They would probably feel a little more comfortable if they knew that you were being vulnerable in this situation too. But I never got that from them. So that sucked. Mm -hmm. So it just ended up being me like talking. And then I I would like end up like crying every lesson, either because I was so nervous or because of what I was talking about. And I was just like, yeah, I'm sure that they love when I teach lessons because they're just like, oh, (laughs) there goes Sister Mulesine again, just crying about everything. So it's just like frustrating because I'm like, I wish there had been more involvement from the parents. I really wish that there had been more involvement from the parents. And like, I don't know, maybe that will be key to like my ever feeling comfortable taking Ramona to like primary or something like that. Because if I can talk to her teachers about whatever they're learning and, you know, kind of get a sense of, but then, you know, to even be able to do that, you have to assume that those teachers are preparing in a certain amount of time for the lessons that they will be teaching and yeah. who knows if that's actually happening. You know, I don't know. So uh, the, the crux then of this conversation that we're having talking about the dissemination of topics and uh, teachings, doctrine, however you want to call it, mm-hmm. that's been around for a while is still oftentimes impractical in getting it just right. And there are oftentimes that are perpetuated incorrect thoughts, incorrect teachings, mm-hmm. just because, again, the culture of the church. So I go back to initially what we're talking about is, you know, cultural and ethnic understanding. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Where does it start? I think it has to start with the families individually, right. because right. even if the top the church says, OK, these are the new teachings, these are the new ways of doing things, it's still going to take time for that to trickle down, Mm -hmm. to get implemented correctly, to be taught correctly, Mm -hmm. to change the minds of the people in the ward. If the teachers and the parents are already having trouble talking about these things that are just plain and simple, quote unquote, and they're having difficulty with that, Mm -hmm. this is, this is a much heavier, much sort of newer in terms of the the content and how the approach is being done, the emotion behind it is strong Mm -hmm. and oftentimes raging. How do we do this then? It's got to be individually. It's got to be in in this type of format, a one-on-one type of conversation with people that 
maybe they don't understand, but you, the more you talk about it, the more they understand a little bit more. So again, I'm just curious, what is the end result that we're looking for here? I think you're right for people to be able to take it upon themselves to learn these things. But I think it's like a chicken and egg situation where it's like, yeah. how do you get the people to start thinking about it a different way if in church they're still learning the things? But how do you teach it differently in church if the people at home are still, you know what I'm saying? Like it's, uh-huh. it all, it one feeds into the other and then again and again and again. But that's what I find so frustrating about the fact that like, I don't know, I was having a conversation with um, dad and our other brother, one of them, at um, a few Sundays ago, um, expressing, like, my, that I, that I wished that in the conference following the death of George Floyd, that they would have said something, that they would have addressed it in some way, and yeah. they didn't, because we had just had conference, then... George Floyd was murdered. I was hoping they have months, you know, to prepare and really hear what the people are saying and understand that there is there is so much conflict between the people and internally about the situation that I hoped that they would be able to find something both meaningful and tactful to say about it. And they didn't. And it didn't. So where I got into it, with our brother was that I was like, they could have just said like black lives matter, but then it comes into the whole, well, the black lives matter, like organization stands for this and this and this, and the church doesn't want to get behind that. I'm like, okay, then don't say black lives matter, but at least address the situation. And I know that people talked about how like racism is bad. Don't be racist. But so many people don't even understand what that means. They're like, well, I'm not mean to black people, so I'm not racist our society and even the church, the way it functions is racist. It's, it's, it's all built in white supremacy, which then automatically makes it racist. And I think maybe that's part of the problem is that a lot of the, cause that was one thing that I can't remember which one of them said that I was talking to, but they were like, well, you know that they don't say anything over the pulpit that not all of them agree on. And I was like, really? I mean, I get maybe like, I don't know. I just never thought about it that way. I didn't think that they had to necessarily confer about whatever they were talking about. And someone could say, well, I don't want you to say that, though, because I don't believe that. Because then it always is like interesting to me, because I always think of like Jeffrey R. Holland. That his talks are usually like, boom, boom. I'm not like pulling any punches. I'm not mincing any words. I'm just going to tell you the things because you need to hear them. And I'm not going to try to be like super nice to you about them either. <laughs> And so I always appreciate that. Like, there's obviously, like, room for that because it has happened. At some other point, I think Elder Oaks said in in some other uh, venue, I don't know if he was addressing people or just, like, in an interview or something like that, that he did say Black Lives Matter. And so I was surprised. I was like, so how come he can say it there, but they can't say it in general conference? I think it was my brother who said, well, he can feel that way individually but he can't say it as a representative of the church and i'm like but why not and then it came to that whole well if they don't all agree on it i'm like well if they don't all agree that black lives matter what are we doing here and that's the thing where i'm like okay so in my life previous to this moment i've always just kind of had this um this trust in those people 
not necessarily blindly, but kind of blindly, because I don't know them personally. Right. I don't know who they are or what they stand for other than like, they're in a leadership position in the church that I attend. So I would assume to a certain extent, we share the same values, but I also could be wrong about that because I've been wrong about it with people in my own neighborhood, people in my own friend groups, and thinking all this time that we share those things in common when, whoops, we don't. I don't know. And that's where it gets sticky for me because it's like, I think that if something were to come down from the top, it apparently would have to be approved by all, what, like 16 of them? Yeah. And approved by committee. Right. That who knows how that'll ever happen if it's like, yeah, these are all for the majority old white dudes. And who's to say they don't think what your racist grandpa thinks? They were raised in the same time. I don't think that being prophets and apostles keeps them from being products of their time. Yeah, and I think that that's a lot of where the issue lies is they are representatives of the church, but they are individuals as well. Right. And a lot of them, they've gone through so many different things. At this point, I think maybe the majority of them at least remember the effects of World War II. Right. And what that was like. So there's all these things. And that was very racially driven. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a war that was devastating based on a lot of those prejudices. And then they lived through, you know, the civil rights movement. They lived through all these things where there's massive shifts in perspective, in how to address people, how all these things. And then now there's even more that they're... Mm -hmm that they're living through. So I, I can understand how on one side they might be like, Oh my gosh, my life has been disrupted so many different times. I have to hold on to something that makes me feel like I did when I was a kid, innocent and whatever. And then the other side was like, no, we got to move with the times. But does that mean that I abandon the principles from before? And so I'm going to bring this to, to me and my experience. Okay. Part of why I feel maybe I'm not quite the 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 right opinion or the right approach or any of that is uh, you recall there was an article that was written um, about our dad and some of the work that was done in his department and he was supposed to be mentioned by name his title was mentioned in the article but he was totally and completely misrepresented as a David Gomez. Mm-hmm. And Dad's name is not David Gomez. No, it's not. <laughs> My immediate reaction, and this is well before any of the George Floyd or the the new movements happening or the renewed movements, I should say, because Black Lives was around well before twenty twenty George Floyd. Yeah. Yes. Um, so it was before this renewed movement, and my immediate reaction was. Anger, mm-hmm. a touch of rage, mm-hmm. and an incredulous belief that a journalist whose entire purpose and process is to vet correct facts mm-hmm. didn't look to see the name of the person holding this title right. in order to cite them correctly. And then dad emailed this journalist who he's spoken to face to face as well as through email several times 
giving information for articles that she's written. Lady couldn't even look at the signature of who was sending her the information. Right. When he when he called her out, telling her that her her information was incorrect, you could have just copy and paste the name, put it in, and you're done. Right. She corrected the article, still misspelling the last name. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and then uh, everyone in the family kind of, uh, they approached me in a way, it was like, hey, your anger is Okay, but why? And, why did we approach <clears throat> you? Because I commented on the article and I said something like, oh, is it that hard to remember the brown guy's name? Mm-hmm. Do they all look so similar that you're just going to throw a name, hope it sticks, and call it good? What kind of journalism is this? And yeah, maybe that was slightly inappropriate. It was, uh, I was one of those keyboard warriors, but you know, I felt justified at the time. But yeah, so the family came and said, hey, your anger's a little bit frightening. I don't think that this is the kind of person you are. Even dad, I think maybe he felt a little torn. I don't actually know. He may have felt a little proud that I was defending him, but maybe not proud because I was defending him in this way. Mom mom was fully on your side in this situation. Yes. <laughs> Which actually I think kind of surprised me. Um, but something that Sam said struck me. I thought, okay. And um, it was something to the tune of the the person that says things this angrily and shows this kind of rancor I'm afraid to be in the same space as this person. And so I was like, okay, fine. I'm, I'm the oldest. I'm the example. I apologize. I took the comment down. My opinion still hasn't really changed. Mm-hmm. But my approach, I think, will be different. But I think it's become harder for me to, to give value to certain fights over others. Okay. So <clears throat> this was a very personal, very immediate okay. situation. Mm-hmm. And while I can understand the, the anger that happens when someone dies, I mean, dad didn't die. He was just misnamed. There's, there, there's that contrast of, you know, someone died, someone was mistreated, disrespected. Mm-hmm. And there's all of the in-between that I'm like, well, what do I shout about then? All of it, I think. And why? So, okay. So in that situation, I think I was maybe a catalyst for kind of having that little intervention for you. Because I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And I look back at kind of the things that I said and the reason why I said them. And I'm disappointed in myself, but also... It gives me a little bit of, I guess, an appreciation for the things that people say to me sometimes at this point, because I'm like, okay, I hate that you said that, but I also said similar things in the past. So I can understand what that's, where that's coming from, but it doesn't make it any less misguided. Because I think, in effect, I said to you, like, well, you can't assume her intention. You're assuming that she had bad intentions. You're assuming that she was racist. Like you're assuming these and these and these things. Here I am like defending this random white woman that I don't know over my dad or my brother whose real life experience this is. And uh, it was tone policing to be like, you're too angry about this. And it was gaslighting to act like you didn't have a reason to be upset about it. 
And I just wanted to be able to tell you that because I, it kind of, it hurts me to hear you say that you're still like that. Well, maybe I shouldn't have done it this way. Maybe I should have said it a different way. Maybe like I shouldn't have been angry. I'm the older brother. I'm the example. But in that I can be proud of my older brother and the example that he set in speaking up against an injustice because yeah, dad wasn't killed, but it starts with disrespect and goes forward from there. If we let people disrespect us because we're brown or we have a different last name or we're from somewhere else, that only gives credence to then people arguing that, well, George Floyd wasn't murdered. It was an accidental death or it was justified force, which it 100% was not. But you get enough people who disrespect Black or Indigenous or people of color on a regular basis, that then those people's deaths mean less. And so that's why I say, like, yell about all of it. If it behooves you to yell about it, I think yell about it. Because I think too much of the time, whether it's a microaggression or a macroaggression, the people perpetrating these injustices don't ever hear about it. It's just us on the other side trying to give people the benefit of the doubt or not wanting to raise a ruckus or not wanting to get in trouble because it is the white people who have the power. And if we don't say anything, then people can say things like, well, there's no racism in Utah. There's no racism within the church. When 1,000%, as people of color, we know there is. So whether someone thinks that you're too angry or not, I think it's better to say something than to say nothing. Because I think for so much time, people have been saying nothing just to try to keep the peace. But I think Martin Luther King Jr. said, the absence of tension is negative peace. It's not peace. And so much of the time, especially within the church, I feel like there's the the spiritual bypassing of it. Well, God will fix everything. Or if you, you can just pray for peace, you can just pray to feel guarded or protected from these things. But praying for that doesn't keep the injustices from happening. It doesn't teach those people how to treat us differently. And so that's, I think that it's worth saying something about all of the things. Yeah, I think I'm still learning a lot about how to react to injustices or what is an injustice or, I mean, I actually hadn't thought a lot about what you said that, you know, it starts with the disrespect and then just kind of escalates from there over time. And yeah, that's true. That makes sense because the, the more that you just let that line keep moving forward, like, okay, maybe this is acceptable then. No, I, I, if I want to get this job, I've got to accept this. No. Okay. If, if I want to be okay with their family, then I'm going to be okay with this. You know, my it's the line upon line works the other direction. Yep. Tough stuff. I, but, uh, you said, um, that you're still learning what to re or how to react to things or which things are injustices like for you personally or in the world at large or both, both, both. Yeah. <laughs> There there are moments where someone will make an slightly off-colored comment and I, I recognize it enough to be like, that's ridiculous. You're being dumb. Like, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. And there are others where it's like, was that a 
a slight was that a like a joke or was that like just colored enough with some prejudice or racism to be like i don't know what they're trying to say with that i don't know how to react to that. i think in those situations it's okay to be honest about your thoughts or reaction to that like hey i don't know what you meant or didn't mean by this but the way that you said it it kind of came off to me as though it could have been a dig at this and that makes me uncomfortable it doesn't necessarily even need to be like you shouldn't say that you can't say that to me just like i want you to know how your comments and actions are affecting me because so much of the time people don't even know that and that's the thing is that like i think i would like to think the the majority of people would like to know when what they're saying is inappropriate because i think that's that's kind of what i run into talking to my white friends is like their ignorance is their ignorance is their ignorance they're ignorant of the things they're ignorant of they don't mm-hmm. know the things that they're doing to perpetuate these issues so much of the time. So not that it's necessarily your responsibility to do anything, but if you feel comfortable in that situation being like, if it's something that you work with on a regular basis, that it would be beneficial for you guys to have a better kind of working relationship. Or if you don't want to have to deal with that, like, I just think that it's up to you, obviously like your own boundaries. But I think that if it's in a situation that you're comfortable talking out about it, I think that it's okay to say exactly what you're thinking. Like, Hey, I've, I kind of felt this way about what you said. I would hope that that wasn't your intention, but even if it wasn't, I maybe you should think twice about how that's coming across. Yeah. I like that. That makes sense. I think what you're trying to do is good to be changing the dynamic of being that guy or that girl that, they're the ones that are up in arms about it to be hey this is an us thing Mm -hmm. we're all part of this in some form or another in small or large ways yeah i love you and i'm glad that you're talking about this thank you i love you i just wanted to make sure you knew because i i in that uh family group text where dad was talking about being invited to a Cinco de Cuatro party. Oh, man. And wanting to make sure that his response wasn't coming off belligerent, was polite enough because it was in a work setting. I was like, Dad, I get being polite in a work setting, but also this isn't, A, this isn't the kind of party that they should be having in a work setting. And um, B, this is about more than just someone not being nice to you. It's literally perpetuating a gross idea about Latino people, Mexican people specifically. And I was like, honestly, like, I don't really care if you're polite or not in your email about that. Like, as I was writing that, it came into my mind, that situation with the woman who wrote the article. And I was like, you know what? This is like very hypocritical of me for me to be telling dad, let it all out when not that long ago I was telling Danny to write it in. And, you know, I thought about the differences in my mindset from then and that's why I felt it was important to apologize because I didn't want it to seem like it's okay for dad to say things in an angry way but it's not okay for you to say things in an angry way because I know that a lot of the time I have also said things in an angry way and I know that you have felt that maybe it's just okay for me to say things and not for you and um it like really bumps me out to hear that because I don't want you to feel 
silenced in any way. I want you to feel like you, I don't know, that's what I want for everybody. I want for everybody, like especially in our family, but people at large to be able to express themselves in a healthy way with the people who are important to them. And I don't know, it always bums me out to hear you say that you feel like you can't say things because of it's going to change our perception of you or you're not going to say the right thing or whatever it is. Because I know that, I don't know, obviously I have like a very blunt way of speaking at this point and I just like say whatever it is. And sometimes I'm like, no, it just is this. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm working on trying to be better at conversation rather than just orating. Is that a word? Yeah. (laughs) But, But yeah, I don't know. I want you to be able to talk about the things that matter to you, talk about the things that are happening. Cause I think that that is part of it is that like keeping it all in also builds up aggression. So if it's going to come off aggressive either way, at least let it out. I can appreciate that. And I appreciate you saying that it's uh, an interesting world that we live in. We often talk about dad and being the diplomat that he is. Mm-hmm. I don't think we've ever asked why he's become that way. When he and I have talked about it a little bit, I don't know if you have been present for those conversations, but um, I asked him last summer, I think you were there when I asked him this question. I was like, is your personality like what it is because that's just what it would have been? Or do you feel like you play into the respectability politics a little bit? And he was like, no, this is just how I am. But then I had him read uh, White Fragility. And I don't know if that was what made the difference. He's also been you know, taking in other things to learn. Um, but he was like, yeah, I guess I realized that. Cause there, and there had even been things that dad had said before that I didn't understand like why he was saying that. Like he would get annoyed or offended when other Latino people would come up to him in a store or wherever else and speak Spanish to him. Cause he was like, why would you just assume that I can speak Spanish? Which like, you know, is its own thing. But that he went extrapolating on it after having learned some different things was like, I realized that I felt offended when other Latino people come up to me and just speak Spanish to me because I've been trying hard to not be seen as Latino. I want to be seen like everybody else. I don't want to be seen as being a brown man or a Latino man or someone from Mexico. I just want to blend in and fit in and have the same respect that everyone else, i.e. white people, have. And he was like, yeah, I realize how that's like sad and kind of destructive and has very much colored the way that he has presented himself both at work and at church because he wants to, at one point he wanted to be like the exceptional brown man, the brown man who didn't fit into the the stereotypes or the, the tropes or whatever. And I think that that, Desire also kind of kept both mom and dad from associating with or participating in uh, different parts of the culture that would that they would have deemed as like low, like low class. Like I was mm-hmm. talking to a friend recently about having watched Selena the series, and I was saying like, yeah, I I really like her music now that I've listened to it, and I know that like a lot of the the English language songs I heard on the radio, like growing up. But um, as far as her, what do they call it? Um, Tejano music, um, which is what she started with. I had never heard until watching the series. 
And it was because it's that kind of music that mom always referred to as like naco. Like it's for, <laughs> it's for like yeah. hicks and hillbillies. Like we don't listen to that. But then I was like, you know, and I met, you know, friends growing up who I didn't feel like they fit into that category of what she described as like naco, but they listened to that kind of music. So then I kind of, I always had this like sort of like weird dichotomy in my brain of like, well, are they like me or are they not like me? You know, even getting upset with the the soccer players across the street in the field. But it's like, they're just people. Yeah. You know, there were some things that were done that were not like 100%. But, you know, they, they talked about talked to them about it. They fixed it. And now it's just like, I don't see the point in feeling aggressively or bad feelings towards people who are more like us than our own neighbors. But then even as as recently as last summer, um, having some of the white neighbors come over and talk to mom and dad and be like, oh, gee, these freaking soccer players come every Saturday and they blah, 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 blah. we're going to call the cops on them. And mom and dad being like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah. And it was in those moments <laughs> that I was like, wait, what is happening right now? Oh my gosh. I don't know. I hope that like through looking into more of these things, I've opened myself up to the things that because of the way we were raised, I thought was like, oh, we don't do that. Like, I'm not this. I'm Mexican, but I'm not this. Because in my mind, that was like only what the knuckles do. And, <laughs> and I think that a lot of that, um, that like the respectability politics are upheld by what the church expects of everyone, but people of color specifically. Yeah. Yeah. I don't even know what else to say on that. I think there's a lot that we still have to do to move forward, to progress that I have to do to move forward and progress. I think I've kind of held back on learning more about what you're talking about. I haven't read White Fragility. I started it, but I thought, what is this really going to do for my life? I think it will do a lot. Well, I think about that more and more now as my baby is closer and closer to being here. We talk a little bit about our heritage and what that means and what makes up a person. And I'm going to have to teach her a lot of that. Not a lot, but all of it, maybe. At least in the beginning, she's going to learn a lot of herself. But I think it's important that I figure out a lot of that, or most of that for myself, if I'm going to teach her the right way. Yeah, I think it's important. And I mean, whether it's a white fragility that you read or other race literacy books, I think I suggested white fragility to dad because it gave me uh, a lot of the language that uh, there were situations that I knew didn't feel right and certain things that didn't feel right and the way that people talked to me that didn't feel right. But I didn't have the language for how to explain what was going on. And I think by reading a lot of race literacy books and just learning more about racial literacy that I've been given that language. And for me, it's been a power to empower myself, to make me feel like not only do I know how to identify tone policing or gaslighting. I also can have the language to defend myself in the moment or to explain to a person like why it's not okay for them to say that, or it's not okay for someone to minimize or dismiss my life experience just because they don't understand it. I don't know. The reason why I've been hoping that more of the family would um, engage in these things is because I think that if, if we all did, I think that we would all see the fruits of that for ourselves, but also for each other. And maybe it wouldn't have the exact same impact on you that it had on me, but I think it at least would give you some of that background to 
feel like you have quote the right opinion on things or the quote the right <laughs> way to to approach things or I think yeah. it's the idea that there's not necessarily like a right way to do things, but something that feels right to you, right? And I think a big part of yeah. that is being able to identify those things. And language is powerful and it's important. And I think that to have a handle on those things is to give ourselves more tools in which to go forward in the world, especially in church. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Is there anything else you wanted to touch on? Not at the moment. I do want to talk again later. Okay. I'm going to do some more work. But I think that this is a conversation that's a continual one. Right. Well, I think that's the thing, too, is like a, a big reason why I want to talk to all of you, my siblings and my parents, is because I know that for the most part, you all are kind of figuring out all of this stuff for yourselves. And it's the the thing that's most often said is that it seems like I come to the table with like a full dissertation of these things. And you guys are like, well, 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 wait. <laughs> but I, I don't know. I think it's important to also like represent their reality of really only beginning to step into these things and figuring out how to do that for yourself. And I think it's important to be able to show that to other people if they haven't gotten there yet, or if they're on their way. And I appreciate your being willing to be vulnerable in that sense and let people see the things that you still aren't sure about and let people hear you be uncertain and still be finding your way, but also be committed to vulnerability in that and also be committed to being willing to learn more and listen for you i will <laughs> thanks study geiger <laughs> i wasn't sure you were to get that <laughs> of course <laughs> all right well i'll let you get back to work okay yeah thank oh, you. Love you thanks for chatting yeah. love you love you bye bye and there you have it a conversation with my brother danny I hope there was something in this episode that you could appreciate or learn from or share with someone else. I'd also like to note that White Fragility was the first book I read concerning racial literacy. And if you're looking to learn more about racial literacy, I would suggest that you support Black authors by reading the books So You Want to Talk About Race by Ijeoma Olu, How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ira Mix Kendi, and Me and White Supremacy by Leila Saad. Thank you for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Will you bye?